0: Hey everyone, it's Ramteen here. I hope you're enjoying your Super Bowl Sunday, aka America's national holiday, aka the day where I get to dip my pizza into ketchup and no one looks at me weird because everyone's just eating way too many calories anyway. Anyway, we're bringing you a special Super Bowl episode about Whitney Houston's national anthem performance 30 years ago at the Super Bowl in 1991. And one of the reasons why the performance was so special, other than Whitney Houston's amazing voice, was that it was taking place during a time that was also politically fraught. It was the early days of the first Gulf War. So this episode comes from our friends at It's Been a Minute. It's a beautiful interview about race, pop culture, and patriotism, all surrounding the Super Bowl. Here it
1: is. We hope you enjoy this episode, and we hope you enjoy the game. Go Chiefs. What was a national mood then? I mean, to be honest, the national mood was, everybody was kind of shook. That
0: is Danielle Smith. And she is talking about the national mood in the run-up to the Super Bowl. Not this weekend's Super Bowl, but another one. Also in Tampa, 30 years ago, in January 1991.
1: It was a different time. I mean, besides the fact that there was no social media yet or anything like that, there hadn't been these huge terrorist events like the Twin Towers going down in Manhattan, the Boston Marathon, those kind of things hadn't happened yet. We didn't really have a lot of familiarity with walking through uh, metal detectors and things like that to go into ball games of any kind. Uh, America
0: we had just yeah, entered the first Gulf War 10 days so. before. People were scared. And the game, Super Bowl 25 it became this visual symbol of America's emerging modern security state.
1: There was a lot of thought at that time that the Super Bowl was a soft target. Oh, wow. Because, you know, there would be so many people there, and I believe at that time, there were 1,700 individual security personnel on site. Um, It was one of the first times they put up barricades around a stadium.
0: In the midst of all of this, a nation at war, one of the greatest pop stars of all time, delivered perhaps the greatest performance of the national anthem ever.
1: And now to honor America,
0: especially the brave men and women serving our nation in the Persian Gulf and throughout the world,
1: please join in the singing of our national anthem. The anthem will be followed.
0: Whitney Houston. Whitney's rendition of the national anthem was a certified hit when it was released, and it helped soothe an entire nation on edge. In the aftermath of 9-11, Whitney's version of the National Anthem became a hit again. It reached the top 20 on the Billboard charts and soothed America's soul once more. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders, and on today's show, we honor Whitney and the 30th anniversary of her rendition of the National Anthem at Super Bowl 25. We're going to talk about what it meant then and what it means now. Because, with another Super Bowl also in Tampa and a nation also very much on edge for different reasons, I keep going back to Whitney. So like I said, Danielle Smith, former Vibe Editor-in-Chief and host of the show Black Girl Songbook, she joined me to talk about all of this. Danielle also wrote the definitive oral history of Whitney's performance for ESPN. So there was no better person to help me make sense of why, 30 years later, This moment of black history still says so much about race and patriotism and a whole lot more. Whitney Houston is she is operating in this really rarefied air in 91. You know, her and Michael Jackson were really the first true pop black crossover stars of the MTV era. And she had been fighting through this kind of shiny, perfect image of pop stardom to be taken as seriously and have the same ubiquity as white pop stars. And so to see her in this moment of intense patriotism singing the national
1: anthem, that is perhaps the ultimate crossover for a black woman like her, no? Yes, and I always think, one, I agree with everything you say there. Um, and I also do think that crossover is a term that we all use without really saying exactly what it means. Mm. Say it. It means to cross over, but no one says crossover from what to what, right? Mm. Back then it meant because radio stations were segregated at that time and black stations played black music and pop slash white stations played white music. One had to cross over from blackness to whiteness, to have the kind of opportunities for success, money, ticket sales, radio sales, all of those things that tie in to being a global superstar, to have those kind of opportunities. I always say that Whitney Houston didn't spend her career fighting for pop success. She used her career. She was fighting for pop equality. Mm. It's different. Yeah. Um, It wasn't fair, frankly. uh, The fact that MTV had to be pretty much forced into playing uh, Michael Jackson's videos. Literally, other labels had to threaten to withhold their white pop stars from MTV so that MTV would play Michael Jackson's videos. And Whitney found herself in a very similar position. So, yes, to see her there after seven consecutive number one pop hits, it was uh, and, and I always say I didn't see it in real time. Mm. Did not see them. I was at work. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was working retail at the time in San Francisco and they were like, it's Super Bowl Sunday. Do you want to come in? And I was like, does it pay time and a half? Because if it does, I'm on the train. So, but to see her, it was everywhere. The, they replayed it over and over and over and over again. It was on the radio almost immediately um, after she sang it because the radio DJs literally taped it from the television broadcast and started playing it. So then, Armister Records actually put it out as a single, and the single went platinum. This is the Ah. power of Whitney Houston.
0: Coming up, breaking down Whitney's entire performance at that Super Bowl, beat by beat. Stay with us.
2: This message comes from NPR sponsor, HBO. In the 1970s, one automotive entrepreneur took America for a ride. The Lady and the Dale unravels the extraordinary story of entrepreneur Elizabeth Carmichael. From the Emmy-winning Duplass Brothers Productions, The Lady and the Dale four-part docuseries debuts with two back-to-back episodes Sunday, January 31st from 9 to 11 p.m. Eastern and Pacific, with new episodes airing subsequent Sundays at 9 p.m. Eastern and Pacific. If you're never quite sure how to answer the question... Where are you from? NPR's Rough Translation might be the podcast for you. Yes, finally, someone else.
0: Give us your accents and your origin stories, your cross-cultural misfits yearning to just be, and listen to Rough Translation on NPR. First, I want to talk about just the imagery of Whitney that night. Whitney Houston. You know, she is in the stadium... There's an entire orchestra behind her. There's military patrol all around, military jets in the air. But she Mm -hmm. is dressed down. She's wearing this white tracksuit. She's got a headband on. She is this dignified soccer mom, patriotic. Miss America to the T, even these little cross earrings that she wore. And I think just her look was perhaps almost in itself revolutionary, her looking like that in that space. What was a look for you?
1: I couldn't believe when I saw it, I was like, that's what she wore? Is she a rehearsal? (laughs) I was like, there's a lot of things that Whitney Houston was known for in her career. Showing up to stuff in a sweatsuit, right, in joggers and a zip-up jacket is not among them. Yeah. And she did in fact look like she might be going to choir rehearsal on if any given <laughs> Thursday night at her church in Newark. Yes. That's what it looked like. But that was the energy that was needed because honestly, declaring war uh, is a kind of insanity that I it's very difficult for me to wrap my head around. But I I do know this. It's not the kind of thing that you need to celebrate with, you know, diamonds and furs and and heels and it seems very much like That outfit that she wore was almost out of respect for the fact that a lot of people were pulling Mm. on uniforms and going to put their lives on the line. Yeah. And she sang it like that.
0: Listen, and I want to talk more about the singing, but I do got to say I watched the video again last night and I realized Whitney Houston as America's soccer mom in that white tracksuit singing America's song at the start of a war. It was this image of a black woman as the ultimate symbol of patriotism and she was perhaps in that moment the most american thing you'd ever seen and that's a big deal for a black woman to be that
1: it's a massive deal for a black woman to be that and to be visible as that it wasn't like she was just chosen because oh my god there's this black woman and she has an amazing voice and we should Like, pull her out. You know, frankly, there's a a black woman with an amazing voice, you know, a lot of places around uh, the recording industry. Mm -hmm. But the thing that was going on with Whitney Houston is they knew that she would do the kind of job she would do for reasons that most people know that most people would do a good job of what they're hired for. It's the experience and the success that they've had thus far. And when you're the kind of person who has seven consecutive number one pop hits you have to realize when you have a number one pop hit, that means everybody pretty much knows who you are in the United States of America. So then you're going to times yeah. that by seven consecutive.
0: We can't even in this era of pop music. I don't think we can understand how big of a deal that is. It's a big deal.
1: No, it's, it's so she was selling millions and millions of records. She was never, never not on the radio. Man. Believe me, the yeah. national football League knew that they were hiring a person who had the experience of moving masses of people.
0: Yeah. You know, when you break it down, she slowed it down. She took it from a waltz to a 4-4. So she went from 3-4 to 4-4, changed the times so and made it more poppy, made it slower. And her delivery is pretty straightforward. There's not too many riffs, not too many runs. She's singing the song. She's belting it, but she's just singing the song pretty straightforward. And it's incredibly restrained. Why does that work in that moment when we're used to right now pop stars just really doing the most?
1: (laughs) You know, that's a good question. I mean, I really feel like the reason that it worked the most is because where most people are nervous, Whitney is the most calm. The spaces yeah. in the song where the notes are most difficult to get to or hold, Whitney is actually most at ease.
0: Yeah. And we should point out here, you know, everyone that does these kind of performances, they do it pre-tape because you just can't sing live in a big stadium. It's impossible. But she did
1: her pre-tape in just one take? She did because wow. this is the thing, it's it's... I love a good run. (laughs) Um, Whitney could do a run times a million, but she used them very strategically, and she chose not to use them here. Um, One, I think it's because runs are difficult to sing along with, and I Mm. think she wanted to make a version of this, of our national anthem um, that was very easy to sing along to, and it was. And the other thing is she turned it into kind of a bluesy ballad, Mm. and that is what Whitney Houston did for a living.
0: Yeah. Well, and there's a certain there's a certain presentation of race that comes when you make the national anthem the blues. When you make it soul, when you take it from three four to four four. And it is in my mind, this subversive blackness that I appreciated her doing in that moment.
1: Yes, I mean, it is subversive, but it's it's also very, very upfront and topmost because the thing is the music that most of America loves, honestly, is based in black blues, rhythm and blues, jazz, et cetera, et cetera. So it's it's not a reach to mm. imagine that a whole bunch of people would like to hear something that sounds a bit bluesy and a bit like a Whitney ballad, because that's what people like in general in this country. Yeah. When you go into the history of music in this country, which is complex, criminal and bizarre Um, What you see over and over again, and this is a story that I know people are familiar with, but it, it deserves to be said a lot, which is it's the music of black blues men and women that was stolen or replicated by white artists. So with the idea of making it more, quote unquote, palatable for broader white audiences. But so when you see somebody like Whitney up there, just like translating like, what is a very solemn and sad moment, a very bluesy moment for mm. the USA, right? It's wildly appropriate. And that's what it is. I don't think her moment was magical. People were like, oh, it was magic. And I'm like, I don't know if it was magic. I think it was the right choice. I think Whitney was the right person. I think she put to work in, to put herself in place to do that. And she was where she was supposed to be because she placed herself in the position to be available Mm. to that moment.
0: Coming up, Danielle tells me her biggest takeaway about that Super Bowl and Whitney's performance 30 years later.
2: This message comes from NPR sponsor CarMax. Finding the right car takes time. And with the new Love Your Car Guarantee from CarMax, you can take your time to make sure you've found the perfect car for you, starting with a 24-hour test drive. Drive it to work, school, and the grocery store before you buy. And if it feels right, you've got a full month and 1,500 miles to keep on driving with their new 30-day money-back guarantee. Learn more about the new Love Your Car Guarantee from CarMax at CarMax.com. We are still in the middle of this pandemic. And right now, having science news you can trust from variants to vaccines is essential. NPR Shortwave has your back. About 10 minutes every weekday, listen and subscribe to Shortwave, the daily science podcast from NPR.
0: What for you is your biggest takeaway from Whitney's performance of the national anthem? at the Super Bowl in 91, 30 years later. I mean, it is a meditation on lots of things, race and patriotism and the importance of popular music and the monoculture. But looking back, what stays with you the most?
1: If you want to know the honest truth for me, what stays with me the most is the fact that she would be dead so early. I think about all that we could be experiencing from her right now. I think about mm. the model that she would present for younger singers, um, f- for young black women and really for women of all races. Yeah, She's such a picture in that moment of uh, preparation and grace and, and it's one that I always, my favorite part of her performance. It always makes me a little bit emotional to speak about Whitney in the past tense to be honest. She's been my favorite since I was a teenager. But when she sings uh, the word free, right, you have to go up really high for that note. And yeah. so many people falter at that space. They shorten it. It kind of goes thin at the top of their voices. Whitney not only sings it strong and big and rich and lush, I go, I all the way through it, she's building up to the high note, But just to let you know how dope she is. She adds like a two or three note flourish.
0: Because she gets the vibe. She's like, Please. yes.
1: And then she goes all the way up to the top. And you're like, how'd you do that? Like, who's doing it? She <laughs> yeah. did it because she could. And then that was a moment when she didn't care if everybody could sing along with her. That mm. was the moment when she's like, I'm giving y'all me right here. Mm-hmm. It just reminds me as, as I walk through life. Yes, we're all here, frankly, to me, in my opinion, to be in service to each other for a better world, right? That's the, our best case scenario on this planet Earth. But every once in a while, you have to remind people who you are. Uh-huh. And that's when she did it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. What stays with it for me is the imagery of Whitney in this pitch-perfect, transcendent pop superstardom and realizing when you follow the rest of her career in life, it was maybe too much pressure to be that perfect. And I think a lot about what we as a culture and as a country asked of a star like her And it just feels like no one can be that perfect forever. And she had so much pressure on her. She had so much.
1: She had so much pressure on her. In addition to the pressure that she put on herself. You know, I tell people, I interviewed Whitney in 1995. I am blessed to have spent like four hours with her at her home in New Jersey at the time. And yes, it was a great evening. And um, I just thought to myself so many times over the course of that evening, you never look like this. In public you never look like Mm. this physically your personality never reads like this when you're in public it was very easy for me to see how much of a performance her life was even when she wasn't on stage but just when she was moving through the world of the music business Mm. and i don't understand how she did it i don't understand how she did it from such a young age and for so Mm. long And it's, um, I do believe, and I agree with you, when you say, you know, it was such a weight. I think it's part of what caused her to die in the way that she died. Yeah. You know, she died during Grammy week. It's like, it's one of the most heartbreaking stories, honestly, in the history of pop. And the thing that makes it wild to me is that when you talk about sort of the unfairness of how black women are viewed in general and in uh, pop culture, that it's not viewed that way. I don't think that Mm. Whitney's life or death is dealt with as it should be at all. And you can believe that I'm making it my business to change that.
0: Yeah, yeah. The essay you wrote about this performance, it's just seared onto my brain and it has been for years. It's poetry to me. And the last like two or three graphs or so, you really just capture the beauty And the significance and the imagery of Whitney and that moment where she becomes transcendent, literally singing to the sky with war jets flying overhead. And I would love if you're okay with it for you to read the last part of that essay for our listeners.
1: Okay, I'm happy to. It makes me feel good to. Very emotional to write this part of the piece. Here we go. Most singers want out of that song. Most reach awkwardly for one note or another or miss it altogether. It's not just that the song is a difficult one. It's difficult in front of people who want to feel the pride in the storybook words. They want to wave their ball caps and whoop in the pause after, or the land of the free. They want to be landlords in the home of the brave. Whitney's version made it all absolute for a moment. Her arms were wide and reaching slightly up at the end, a pose familiar to many Americans across races. Her head was back as one's can be when victorious and as one's can be when asking for and ecstatically receiving the glory of God. Bright bulbs flashed and popped off behind her. Floodlights intersected with the hazy Florida sunshine and created stairways to heaven. You could almost walk up there to where the four war jets are. You have to understand.
0: I miss her so much. <laughs> I miss it her, too her so much?
1: much. Like it's too much. Yeah. Thanks
0: again to author Danielle Smith. Danielle is hosting a new music and talk show from Spotify and The Ringer called Black Girl Songbook. On the show, she celebrates and uplifts black women in the music industry. Black Girl Songbook, it also has an episode dedicated to Whitney. So go check it out. All right, before we get to the credits this week, i uh, got to take a little time to honor a dear friend and colleague. This is producer Anjali Sastry's last show with us. She's going off on a fellowship for the next few months. And the team, past and present, of It's Been a Minute, we wanted to give her a little best thing shout out all about her.
2: Hey Sam, it's Star from Cypress, California, and the best part of my week was finding out that my mentor and friend Anjali is starting her journey to make radio a more inclusive place. Anjali, I'm gonna really miss working with you every day. You are such a force. One of the best things about Anjali is that she always puts confidence in others and does everything with warmth and kindness. The best thing about Anjali so far has been how hard she's worked on It's Been a Minute and how much that's meant to the show. And she'll be there to lend an ear or to be a cheerleader when I need it. So the best
0: thing about Anjali, my dear friend, my dear colleague, is that she never takes no for an answer. She is the most Diligent and committed producer.
2: She's a kind, hardworking, talented friend and colleague who I can talk to about pretty much anything. Um, And she's the first person who made me feel at home at NPR. All the best for this new journey, Anj. I'm so proud of you. Looking forward to what you make after this. Congrats. It's been an amazing ride. We're going to miss you.
0: Anjali, we will miss you. I can't even recall what my work life was before you entered it. I am grateful for you more than you'll know. All right. This week, the show was produced by Danae West, Anjali Sastry, and Andrea Gutierrez. Our intern is Liam McBain. Our fearless editor is Jordana Hochman. Our director of programming is Steve Nelson. And our big boss is NPR's senior VP of programming, Anya Grundman. All right, listeners, till next time, be good to yourselves. I'm Sam Sanders. We'll talk soon.